Welcome to In Early, the crypto podcast, where I speak to those at the forefront of the digital asset space, telling real-life stories, discussing the growth and growing pains of the industry, and exploring how blockchain technology has made an impact on people's lives. My name is Matt Green, and I'm the blockchain litigation lead at Shoesmiths. This week, I speak to Bob Williams, the Vice President for FinTech Digital Assets and Blockchain Technologies at Lockton, the world's largest independent insurance brokerage. We speak about how TradFi is leading the drive policy creation, Lockton's emerging asset protection team, how it builds policies for custody, what role fidelity in crime has in all of this, as well as tokenization and the future. Bob, welcome. Thank you very much. Let's just get straight into it. I'm, I know you're a, you're a Kiwi, previously living in Australia. You're now a Londoner. Um, you've worked in a variety of, of brokerages, um, including Aon JLT Specialty, which I think was acquired by Marsh a little while ago. And now you're vice president at Lockton. Can you tell us a little bit about how you got here and your personal story? Yeah. Um, so born and raised in New Zealand, um, I've always been a lover of science. And so I actually originally went off to university to study uh, marine biology, of all things. Um, I was uh, doing that, and then unfortunately, just sort of during the process of transitioning to masters, uh, my mother got ill. Um, I went home to look after her, and then when she passed, I said, so "Well, I need to travel the world now." Before I go back and study and commit myself, I'm going to go do something. Got as far as Melbourne as all good uh, Kiwis do, um, and got myself what I thought was a temporary job, uh, being what we call an accounts clerk <laughs> um, at a, a subsidiary of Aon Australia. And then it's been 11 years, uh, promotions, moving industry. Temporary job then? Yeah, it was a really good temporary yeah, job. Really yeah, good. <laughs> really good temporary job. But yeah, uh, 11 years on. And how did you get into this world of blockchain, digital, digital assets? We call them digital assets now, don't we? Digital it's assets. a catch-all term. But how, did, how did that turn from you taking this temporary job, promotions, promotions, to where you are now? So I was at the time working for JLT uh, in the UK, and I got to be involved on a really cool project to do with the idea of actually creating a, a currency for a private and multinational company to do with your accounting so that they can around the world just have a single balance sheet um was advising them on that and i got like, this stuff's fascinating so i started reading and reading and reading yeah, yeah, yeah. and then as luck would have, have have it i decided i missed client work wanting to do more and more client stuff working with clients more closely mm-hmm. and a former colleague of mine had just had was at aon uk now and was saying hey i'm setting up a fintech and digital asset practice We've got a, a little budding bunch of clients, but I need someone who understands client work. Mm. What do you know of uh, digital assets? I know you should say. Yeah, yeah. I'm, but... actually, I'm actually quite interested in this stuff. Yeah. And yeah, that was 2019 I moved over to. So yeah. that was when I moved to Aon and we built out their practice team. And then last year I got the opportunity to move to Lockdowns, who have a, 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 a quite a strong place in this sector. Yeah. And they said, look, we want someone to come in. We want to build our bench. Yeah. We need to have someone who knows what they're doing. We want a technician. So that's what yeah. I do. And yeah, uh, it's just been the last sort of almost five years now, and it's been a crazy whirlwind, and it's been awesome. Yeah, yeah. Well, 2019 seems like an interesting date because that's sort of when I professionally got into it myself. But I wonder whether that's when the industry started turning slightly more professional. I mean, there's probably arguments say that it's still not, but I wonder whether that's the point where some of the big players or some of the service industries um, really started to pay attention to it. I would actually think that was probably when we started to see a major shift. So at the time, I had a client, a large custodian, won't name names, but they had a very sizable, we'll call it traditional client, mm. um, uh, one of the world's largest f- private funds, mm. sort of retirement money and the like, and they had a digital asset strategy, which at mm. the time was, now you go to every major asset manager. Yeah, and they've, they've all got one. Yeah. At the time, it was yeah. one of the first, and they needed a custodian. And so... That was sort of that rise of my company who was like, what, what is this? Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're doing this little thing. It's a bit of a pet project. Hmm. But we actually now suddenly have some real names. And so it kind of accelerated and kicked it off from there. Because that's what I found. It was like everyone who I spoke to in the service industry, especially in law, was like, what is this? We don't want to touch. We don't understand it. And then it was sort of as bigger names and bigger brands came in. Oh, they're dealing with it. Okay, well, this bank's taking it. Okay, well, now they, we, we've got a little bit more interested in it. I think now we're at a stage whereby actually some really big financial institutions are dealing with that and everybody's taking it all quite seriously. 100%. We, we see it all the time. The The number one thing we're getting is from even small, quite established home offices mm. and these family private investors all the way through to major banks have some form of project. Mm. 
depending on their own risk management and thought process, some of them are, you know, fully going in, they're two feet and they've jumped in. Mm. Others are hedging their bets, they're doing things maybe a little bit more conservatively, mm. or, you know, they're going around the edges to sort of get in maybe less crypto, more, well, how do we use blockchain more smartly? And do you think that you feel like you need to know about the tech to participate in, I'm going to just say general services, because... I suppose as a lawyer, it depends how you interact with the space, but there'll, there'll probably be insolvency lawyers who are able to in, interact with the digital assets world because of the various insolvencies that are happening. So they may not need technical knowledge. I think in my world, you do because you need to understand blockchain analytics and how that works. In your experience, does it require people to have an understanding of at least a little bit of the technicalities? You need to hit us in a little bit, but it is a nutritional growth. You don't need to sit there and be able to understand why using this protocol over this protocol? Mm. Why, you know, you get some of these firms who, you know, going all into the ripple phrase. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Helpful, don't get me wrong. Yeah. Like, these are good skills and knowledges to know, but they're not, um, a like, you don't need to have them. Yeah. You need to have some. Yeah. I always think of, um, in my industry, I'm a, I'm a translator by trade. Right. I have to sit there in between an insurance company who, yeah. I always use it, they like to speak French, they're only going to speak French, they're never going to speak anything else. And then I've got my clients who mm. can only speak English. Mm -hmm. You might recognize the odd word from each other. Yeah. And to be honest, to do our jobs properly as brokers and to be a competent broker, this is not just for digital assets, this is all industries. We need, need to know enough to be able to translate what's important mm. and what's not. So the, the, the key I always say is you need to know enough so you can pick out the importance and know where to leave the noise. Okay, that's a nice way to phrase it. To just get that tailored, yeah. So thinking about the insurance market generally, broadly, what's your take on insurance in the digital asset market? Because it's sort of been developing that it was and it wasn't, you know, the case I worked on in 2019 was all about insurance and ransoms. And uh, I don't know, it just seems as though the insurance market has sort of got to grips with this and hasn't. Maybe there's a market for it, maybe there isn't. What's your take on it all? So the problem is that we often view the insurance market as a single behemoth and it's this one market all works together. Mm. In reality, it's not. It's a bunch of fiefdoms, even within companies, they constantly got different approaches. There is a, an insurance company I work with every day of the week who is brilliant from a custody perspective. They know custody. They also have an arm that does what we call liability. So these are corporate stuff, um, what directors need, yeah. that kind of stuff. That side doesn't want to touch digital assets. Oh, no, 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 it's, a, it's too risky for us. You're on the other side, though. Yeah. Same pot of money, same shareholders. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's because of this this fiefdom element. So to, annoyingly to answer your question, it's both. Yeah. We've got some parts which are evolving rapidly. They're yeah. really trying. The underwriters there are actively working to learn. Yeah. I do a training session probably once a fortnight or yeah. three, three weeks with different insurers, yeah. going to their claims teams, teaching them you know, the basics, 101. Um, they're really invested in this stuff. Then you have others who are just like, oh, I'm not going to get management sign off. You even get some... There's a lot of that, I think. A lot of that. Management are like, I've, I've been doing my job for 20 years. I don't have to ever deal with this. I don't understand it. It's not worth it. Leave yeah. it alone. And that's fine, I guess, right? We, it, it's fine in some respects, but it's also frustrating because what we're trying to tell them, and it's now causing them issues, and this is probably why we're seeing a little bit more innovation, is their quote-unquote TradFire clients. Uh, yeah. And... Look, you can be a major major insurance company, uh, one of the largest in the world, and you've got a, ma a mandate from your chief broker, underwriting officer, I should say, sorry, who says no crypto, absolute crypto is exclusion. Mm -hmm. And then your three largest clients around the world all have projects. Mm -hmm. And these are clients that pay you several millions in premium a year on just one line. Yeah. They're going to sit and go, well, if you won't, I'll find someone who will because I'm X bank and I can get what I like. Yeah, And so we're seeing this evolution happen, it, but it really does depend on the part of the risk that you're trying to transfer and how fast that evolution is happening. Well, we'll get on, I think, later on to what part of the risk is trying to be insured, but it's just interesting in terms of the fiefdoms because it's a little bit like law, right? Because law is essentially, I would say it's a little bit like fiefdoms. You're in a law firm and each partner or each, I don't know, fee owner will have their own little fiefdom I think is the right word there was a guy I used to work with at one of my old firms and he was Mr. Video Games and he's joined a firm and now he's the video games guy and I guess the firm's got to practice in that because of him so I guess in the insurance world it's a little bit like that maybe where it's like that individual's come along and they carry this goodwill with them this knowledge with them and I guess that's why we're now hiring them because we want that business 100% that's same as law 100% insurance has worked we there's a underwriter who's recently moved and 
very boring normal FI world, but he happens to be an expert mm -hmm. in a particular subclass of financial institutions. Mm -hmm. That new insurer knows that there's going to be a lot of traffic yeah. towards them on that client base. And that's the same with, with everything. The knowledge in the insurance industry is much like law. It's wrapped up in individuals. Yeah. They try as they might to try to put them into notes and have yeah. it as a element. But realistically, it's the people. We're a 300-year-old industry who's we're talking about digital assets. We're a people industry. Yeah. We like people. We talk to people. That's all it is. So looking at where insurance, I guess, was a few years ago and where we are now, like I, I understand that there's protection against hacks and ransoms paid, and but they're slightly less fashionable than they were. And I guess, so I'm told, it's less commercial for insurers. So I, I, I suppose that's a clumsy way of asking two questions. Where were we a few years ago in the insurance world and how we progressed and what things have fallen out of favor and possibly why? So one of the, the big things that happened a few years ago was in the cyber market. Mm. A lot of people don't, we insurers love to use nice broad, broad terms in these clips, which don't really mean anything to real people. Um, we're a jargon company. We like, we're, we, we like it just as much as the digital assets do. Law's the same. We love a jargon. It makes us feel, it makes us feel very smart and proud. Yeah. But cyber was designed as a product for two main sides of things. You've got your first party and your second mm. party. Your first party is someone hacks or you've got bad software comes in or anything along those lines. You've got DDoS, doesn't matter. Forget about digital assets or not just companies. Mm. With that, you might have loss of revenues and you've got restoration costs to just rebuild yourself. Mm. It's like no different realistically from a building burning down. It's the same element, but in the digital world. But there's also the liability side because as businesses, Brokers are the same, law is the same. We hold data, quite confidential data, on behalf of other people. Mm. We have liability that sits with that, and there's laws around that. It gets a little murky with that liability side, because some of it is how much is it your professional duty to keep stuff safe, and how much of it is actually just a cyber element. Mm -hmm. But I'm getting way too technical here. Um, <laughs> but within that same cyber was the ransomware piece. Yeah. That you know people holding computer systems to ransom. That market got devastated. There was absolute chaos. There was a ransomware attack, especially just before COVID. At the beginning, literally every week, there was a new major loss. So what? Lots of people were having to pay out. Insurers were basically had burned through their reserves, wow. were cashing into their reinsurance reserves, yeah. and some of their reinsurers were catching into their reinsurance. So there was just money was just being being set alight. That's interesting because when in 2019 this all kicked off, the obvious play was speaking to insurers about exactly that about ransoms and i got through the door in quite a, uh, i suppose a small handful of big insurers and they were quite interested and there were board meetings and i sort of pitched to them what i found really frustrating was it was actually quite an easy seemingly an easy solution to a problem right an insurer pays out a ransom and then my job is to go and get that back but no one was really that interested. I was frustrated that there wasn't a response. I guess the answer is, is because actually it didn't make a lot of sense for insurance because they were paying out, as you just said, huge amounts of money. So why bother even trying to get it back? Because that, that costs too. The, the tail's too long for them to take back. You might say they take three or four years, but if you've got 10 million here, 10 million here, 10 million here, all of a sudden, if they get back, great. But at this point, they have to write off as a loss. Um, and so what happened was rates went through the roof. So mm. cyber premiums went insane. And then from the digital asset perspective, mm. it became even harder for them because if you're a, if you're an insurer, why are you going to write something innovative when your, your book's burning? You're not going to start building something nice and flash where half your house is on fire. No, you're on panic mode. You're trying you're to save. Yeah, yeah. Save. It's, yeah. You're going to be looking at your nice bread and butter, stable things you can understand. Um, became a real big challenge. So have things gotten better then? Because there's a reason why you're sitting here. People are still paying attention to it. So I guess the market is still interesting enough for people to want to insure their assets in some way. So insuring the assets is a little bit different. So from a digital asset perspective, most of the risk that was happening pre-2019 sort of and mm -hmm. into the past couple of years through this were being insured by the idea of theft and loss. This is we start getting to this insurance, things become very um, typical. If someone hacks into your system or any company and steals your money, that often falls as a, what we call a crime risk or a fidelity risk. Mm -hmm. It's it's a theft. As opposed to someone coming in and saying, I've sealed the vault to your building, you have to pay me to get it unsealed. That's, that's ransomed. And it actually falls to different insurance products. The crime market or the fidelity market 
whilst hit, has been hit, hasn't been hit as hard because it is actually a lot harder to steal people's money from their accounts. Talk to anyone from the digital asset world. Mm. It's really hard to steal. It's easy to brick someone. Bricking someone's quite nice. What do you mean by bricking? Stopping their ability to access their systems. Oh, I see. DDoS attack. Right, Shut, right. Shutting that down and saying, hey, give me, I'll give you this pass key for a 10 million and off on your way. Mm. But actually going in there and trying to remove assets... Well, you have to get in and get out. And that, 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 that's <laughs> yeah, yeah. a lot harder. Just ask any uh, any thief trying to break into a vault. It's I'll have to ask him. Yeah. I'll give him a call. We'll, we'll go down to the jail. be great. Yeah, yeah. Go down to the jail. But on the, the that crime side, we've slowly seen an increase in appetite and understanding. We've got two versions of markets depending on how you store assets, but there's been an evolution, mm. been an education. And there's also, to be honest, it's been a diversifying a book. You know, can't keep just writing the same old, same old, mm -hmm. where our economies are evolving, how we use money is changing. So the insurers are having to adjust for that. Do you think then that people are actually wanting to protect in whatever way possible, whether it's, as you said, sealing or stealing or whatever, the market is still big enough for people to want to pay attention to it? I think so. There's still a need for for these things, especially as you become a more of a corporate entity. Yeah. These are just basic risk managements that you, you don't want to cover it dollar for dollar, like for like. It's just not possible. Mm. Banks don't do that. Mm. They just want to cover enough so that they, this is what they, how much they can control, a certain percentage mm. that they can wear and it's not going to make blink an eye. The rest, the, the big stuff here, we want to get sort of transferred where we're possible. And anything above that, well, that's cat loss. And basically, if we ha that happens... There's no amount of insurance in the world that's going to save our reputation. <laughs> We're done. <laughs> I want to get into Lockton a little bit more. Um, I had a dig around um, on Google, as I do. And I read a Lockton bulletin from October 2022, um, which says, it was about a, a year or so ago, uh, it was by Sarah Downey, a managing director of the financial services claims leader and blockchain advisory leader, at least she was then, maybe not now, um, at Lockton, called Lockton Launches New Digital Asset Custody Insurance Facility, which notes, and I quote, Lockton, the world's lar largest independent insurance brokerage, is announcing the creation of a new industry-leading custody insurance facility available exclusively to its digital asset clients. Developed by Lockton's emergent, uh, Emerging Asset Protection, so that's LEAP team, in collaboration with leading global custody insurers, the facility is supported by Lloyd's syndicates together with highly rated insurance companies. This provides Lockton clients with market-leading policy wording and full access to London market capacity, estimated today to be in excess of $850 million for custody coverage. Key benefits of Lockton's new facility include, and there are uh, there's three, but I'm going to list them. I appreciate I've been reading this out, but we're going to go through them in a minute because I want to understand a bit more. But A, efficiency, including full access to the market capacity for custody coverage without the need for third parties. B, flexibility including the ability to secure bespoke programs, incorporating various limits and cost structures designed to work alongside an insured, uh, and insures existing and future risk management planning as it onboards custody of digital assets, and C, a clear route to entry via a streamlined custody insurance underwriting process managed by Lockton's experienced LEAP team members. I think that's the longest thing I've had to read when I've been recording. <laughs> Apologies for anybody who has to listen to me too much. I'd want, if we can, to understand all this a little bit more. Um, can you tell me about what this initiative was and let's run through how it works? Yeah. So really firstly, uh, Sarah's still still with us. She actually leads us globally. So. I thought she might have just been protected, uh, promoted, <laughs> sorry. No, so she uh, she takes these our global leader practice. I'm a member of LEAP. Okay. Um, uh, real briefly on LEAP, we're a team of about 35 to 40 of us now. Yeah, okay. The last chat. And we sit around the world. And what we are is a kind of a virtual practice that we help each other out with spoon mm. tea. So... There's a colleague of mine who uh, works in uh, California. He's mm -hmm. really good with things like DAOs and, and setting up that kind of element. Mm -hmm. um, and Sarah runs us from the, to the top down, and we go to her to advice. I was talking to her last night. Um, you checked the quote. I did. Uh, yeah. She, <laughs> she's checked it. She's very happy with okay. that. It was quite All right. Um, on, on this, so this is what we call our uh, digital asset custody solution. Real briefly, in the insurance world, you've got a, a, a mar an insurance market known as specie. These are the insurers who insure things like gold bullion, really old-fashioned kind of thing. And as they've been creating insurance products for the crypto space for a while now, because all we've got them to think of is slightly different, is a nice gold bar's got inherent value, this USB stick has inherent value. Yeah. Really simply, yeah. that's basically what... Okay. And obviously, then we take in consideration evolutions to MPC, multi-sig, all the different ways in which we can now store these and 
um, separate them around the world. What we've done with uh, this initiative is we created a, a line slip of pre-agreed insurers who are going to follow two lead insurers who know this stuff, you know, inside and out. They're, they're, they're amazing. I will name them. They are name them. Canopius, they're an amazing Lloyd Syndicate, and Arch, another amazing Lloyd Syndicate. Absolutely fantastic. The two underwriters there, Nick and James, I work with every day and I'm, I'm grateful. Full name them. Let's have it. Uh, Nick Edwards and James Croom. I literally think they're amazing. I work with them every day. <laughs> and the poor guys have to hear this voice pretty much every day. They're, they're absolutely brilliant. So we we run a facility that's led by them. They, they're the signers and they help set the tone. Right. They have been working in this industry now since the first uh, species slip was ever written. Mm-hmm. They are investing in it. They're constantly pushing their own wording. Clients don't even have to push half the time. They're constantly going, what's the next thing? How do I expand as much coverage to give as much as possible? So they've got the right attitude, so that's why they're brilliant. And sitting behind them is a panel that also follow. If they say it's good enough, we say it's good enough, and they give out their capacity. So instead of having to run around the market and get up to 13 insurers signing down their lines, we can literally just get these two. We get them together. We have a meeting with the client, go through a nice, simple process, and we're done. Nice and easy. In the past, what we've often had to do is get third-party consultants in to review things because we're not tech people. But what we've managed to do is asking a very simple series of questions that if it meets these requirements and it's nice and straightforward, we can do that. Now, for some really technical elements, with some really other weird innovation stuff, which we still see to this day, we do like to say, well, do you have third parties that you've contracted and we work that way with clients? But for the most part, it's how are you doing it? Let's explain it out. Because that was my next question. Why is removing a third party survey important? And who and who are they? But I guess that's the technical element. And you're saying, well, actually, we can deal with this all in-house because we have that expertise. Yeah. Which rem- I guess that means it's cheaper to some extent. You're not relying on third parties. And it's quicker. Often clients were having to sit there and pay an extra hundred grand just to get a third party to come in and do a review. That the risk is what they say it is. Um, and that's just because you you didn't have someone who could go in. And I'm not saying I can sit there and you know lift up the bonus and be able to tell all the technical elements. Yeah. But you know how the risk management process kind of flows. Yeah. And yeah. you can do that. And at the end of the day, that's what we hear. We're risk people. Yeah. You cannot, and this is the thing that I think the digital asset world and to us the tech world gets wrong. It's not about getting your risk to zero. Mm. It's getting to your risk into a box that you can understand. It doesn't need to be zero. It just needs to be understood. And then yeah. from there. We've mitigated, isn't it? That's the point. Yeah. I, I don't think you can put anything at zero unless. No. You, and and the, to be honest, in my industry, if someone says, oh, it's no risk, I sit there and go, and excuse my language, I'm like, Where's the dirty diaper? Like, <laughs> What's it? going on? Where is it? Where Can I smell it? Where is it going? I like the way that you said excuse your language for diaper. Oh, I decided to change. I thought I was going to say yeah, something harsher, but I thought. Um, when you talk about custody then, mm. custody of what? Is it private keys? Is it is it the physical USB? What, what is it? All of the above. So it, 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 back in back in the day, a few years ago, um, it was literally a private keys saved onto you with you know, auto printed at the, at the, pro, the generation. Yeah. These days, it's the vast majority are using uh, MPC-generated software, so it's actually the key shares. So you might have, uh, for an example, you're going to have a custodian who's going to store, um, they're going to do it as a three of three um, element, and they're going to store them in three separate locations, and it's the literal human interaction with them. Mm-hmm. So say they're stored on a, a, a USB stick or a special um, cell phone that's stored in a, in a Faraday cage somewhere, or even HSM, it doesn't doesn't matter. Each of those key shares, if they get destroyed, so a bit, uh, someone comes in and crashes them up, you can't do the reconstitution, you lose two of the three, or employees collude to steal them. It's it's that element. That's what it covers. It's designed for that. It's because the number one risk for custodians is not third parties kicking in the door. They're they're, they're way too secure for that. It is literally their internal employees, their number one risk. And that's, I suppose, a risk that you guys have identified knowing the industry. Knowing the industry, but also that's the number one risk for all financial institutions. Okay. Your money doesn't usually doesn't, the number way which people steal money from your bank, your nice regular fiat currency is through the bank's internal employees stealing, Mm -hmm. which you know, half the time you don't notice about because they've got internal protocols or you being fished as an individual. Yeah. The same variable is the same. It's the human. The technology is secure. They know what they're doing. The security mechanisms in place. You don't, as much as movies make it out, there's like these awesome, you know, high stakes of break-ins. Yeah. It's not reality. Guy in the mainframe. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> they're, they're hacking me live. Um, it's it's not like that. It, the reality is people. So that, we've taken it a step back and going, let's just ignore the noise. 
where is risk actually sit? It's with humans. Yeah. So what are the protections you are to mitigate the tech? Cool, we understood that. You're using the the latest uh, MPC protocols, you mm-hmm. write tech providers. Um, now are you doing that side? And that's realistically what this is about. We're focusing on the people element. So if you are focusing on the people, does it not include any issues relating to tech as well? It does. So to us, that's the the easy bit to get out of the way. So you sit there with a, a, a custodian provider and go, yeah. well, who, who's your tech stack provider? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, we're using, and I'm not going to say her name Brancy, but you're using the ones that you can think of, the, the big players that a lot of custodians mm-hmm. use. Once you know you're using those, you know how roughly how those systems work. It's, well, how are you implementing them? Oh, we, we at this level of authority, you need this level of sign-off. Mm-hmm. Once you go above you know, $10,000 worth, it's now this level of sign-off and two people. That's the bit we care about mm. because once you've got that tech stack underway, the tech stack's the easy bit because mm. you just go through and go, well, does it say what it does on the tin? And it's written down, I suppose. Don't you know the risk here. How is it going for Lockton in this respect? Because I've seen certain insurance product providers, third parties, whatever, they've sort of come and gone, new ones are emerging. They think that they've solved the issues um, in the market. But Lockton is massive. So how is it going at Lockton in, in in terms of this initiative? And how has it maybe shifted in the last year? So firstly, we haven't solved all the problems. That'd be boring. A normal, honest thing to say, I think. Um, I, it'd be boring if we had. It's yeah. fun to that we're solving the problems. Yeah. And we're solving them with our clients. Yep. The fun part. Um, in short, it's actually going really well. The leap practice is growing from strength to strength to strength. Mm-hmm. We're picking up new clients all the time. And we're not picking up clients because we can get a quote-unquote cheaper deal. We're picking up clients on the basis of we understand what they're doing. Yeah. They're not ringing up some person who goes, oh, yeah, I do a few crypto clients, um, but majority of my stuff's banks. Yeah, I only do tech companies. That's yeah. all I do. Um, yes, I do play with a little fintechs every now and again, um, and they're fun in their own right, but they're all evolving into this space. But yeah. this is me and my team, this is just what we do. Um, it's all that element. Um, I have a meeting with a, a prospect today who's a hedge fund, but that's not my client. It's one of my colleagues' clients. They're having to invest in digital assets. So yeah. I'm coming in from the digital asset element. It's a little bit, I guess, like my world where as a lawyer, I'm sort of hived off and dealing with all the digital asset stuff. And that feeds into a variety of things. So I guess it's the same for you where you're sort of pulled into meetings as the guy who knows stuff and has experience. Yeah, I, I, I sympathize with that massively. And it's good to see that there are solutions being considered in the wider market. How then, uh, I suppose the second question was, how has that shifted in the last year? Is it, have you seen like a, a massive spike in your team or in things that you're doing? Has there been a, uh, I suppose, a, a um, response from the market generally? So what we're actually seeing is there's been a real increase in the TradFi world. Getting into, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, the um, the guys who look after our funds, uh, it used to when I first, even as early as a year ago, oh, we've got three or four funds. I'm probably having a meeting a month now with a different fund or a family office who's who's going into this. Yeah. We've got some form of digital asset strategy, they say, and it's about unteasing that from a risk perspective. So that's really interesting. And then on our larger FIs, we're seeing the increase of, and I love this buzzword, tokenization. Yeah. It's a nice so. general statement where... I, the Bank of Bob, is now into tokenization. Okay, can you be a bit more specific? <laughs> yeah. But we're seeing seeing more and more of that from that side. Yeah. What's also exciting is, and to be honest, insurance market rates are starting to go down a little bit on in the traditional world. So insurers are suddenly going, especially in liability, mm. directors, officers, professional identity. They're saying, I need to make more money. Hey, there's this industry that I've kind of ignored for the past couple of years. Yeah. Sorry, what are the rates online for yeah. that again? Yeah. And all of a sudden, like, yeah, the rates online are quite yeah. nice, aren't they? Yeah. Would you like to participate? So it's great for us because yeah. a few years ago, we we're having to tell clients it wasn't so much uh, you cannot you could only get this much limit. Mm-hmm. It was limitations on actually how much limit they could buy. Now it's well, limit's not really the question. It's how much do you want to spend. And it's a nice conversation to be having. Probably a bit easier as well, because as time has gone on, people understand that this stuff isn't going away and actually it's important and yeah. And it's also not as scary as the, uh, some of the, so look every now and again, I get like the memories from things sent from friends of news articles from a few years ago, uh, from some of the more extremist members of sort of media and yeah. it's always yeah. quite fun. Um, well, you'll have to listen to that. I had uh, Erica Stanford on here and, and, and she was talking about her book and some of the, the crazy stories that have happened in the world, but we'll try and we'll try and gloss over those and actually legitimize this. 
deal in the murky world of some of these scams. But um, in terms of what Lockton's doing then, how is it different from what competitors are doing? Obviously, you don't need to name names, but it's just interesting to understand how Lockton is doing something that others aren't maybe. So the realistically, the insurance market's quite small. So all the brokers can go to the sort of the same insurers. Mm-hmm. So there's a mix of creating our own products. Mm-hmm. We do quite heavily, customizing our own wordings, et cetera. Mm-hmm. But in reality, the the best way from as a broker, and this is more of a personal opinion than anything else, is our value is the relationships we as individuals bring up with clients. Mm-hmm. The trust that goes, goes through with it. I say this to prospects all the time. If you've got a broker who you feel knows enough about your business and as you feel is really going to bat for you, don't move. Mm. You need that trust. It is a trusted thing. For a trustless economy that we're trying to build, there's a lot of it built on trust element to here. So what we're trying to do that's a little bit different is just focus on the knowledge base, upskilling our people, making sure we actually know what we're talking about so that we can stand in front of a client and as close as possible, speak native English to them. Be, be that same language person. Mm-hmm. Because we've got the French down. That's nice and easy. <laughs> it's now trying to get yeah. to the English side. Yeah, I, I, I fully understand that. And certainly in the legal world, you see people talk to clients like they are lawyers as well. And it just doesn't compute. And you need to be able to speak the relevant language. If that's the main thing that Lockton is focusing on, or one of the main things. I, I, it's the thing that I'm most proud of. There's lots of that we're trying to do products all the time. And it's it, we're doing some really good roles with that. And I find that so fascinating, but I like the people out of them. Yeah, yeah. I like clients. What do you think that people want the most when they're shopping around? So your customers, like, what is it that they view as the most important thing? The thing I think they think is the most important thing is that there's someone who legitimately is acting like they're employed by them, who gets stuck into them, who, who gets in and is fighting for them on the smallest of minute of things. That's a, that's a human thing, isn't it? Because you've got to give off that sense that you are going to fight in their corner. But it's also a pride thing. So to us at Lockton, what we do is mm. we educate our people, we empower them. Mm. So a lot of the broking firms, and I've come from these firms, are so very hierarchical. Mm. Can't scratch your nose without three levels of sign-off. Yeah. You can't do this. Lockton's is, we're, we're a private company. So yeah. we're owned by a single family, the Lockton family. Yeah. Name. Um, and then the partners, the private, and they're the equity in the business. Yeah. That's it. So the, the, and the people who literally pays my salary is coming out of his equity we I sit beside him every day. So there is that direct relationship of empowerment of go do what's right for the client. And because we, we run on that basis, we're not looking from quarter to quarter income. We look at things over five-year plans. So at the moment, we look at our digital asset and yeah. elite practices. What's the five-year plan? How do we pivot and adjust? And the running joke with operations is, well, with digital assets, we're doing five years, but it's really we should be touching base every month to see where the market shifted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's what we do. So we're able and empowered to adjust and pivot and do what's needed for clients. I suppose that there's that there's that a level of bureaucracy that's been stripped away and I yeah. guess a little bit of agility. Hundred percent. The I've been at Morgan's for over a year now, and I find it still to this day, maybe you know, as one of the partners says, you bring a backpack uh, baggage with you. Yeah. Um. I find it weird that every now and again, this idea for a client, this is what we're going to do, we're going to do this strategy, we're going to fly them and do this. And I have a partner that goes, so are you asking for my permission? Why just go, go do it. That's like, great. Oh, yeah, of course, yes. Yeah, that's great. That's such a positive thing to do. And it means that you can be, as I say, a little bit agile, flexible, and, and bend the rules a little bit, which I always appreciate. Um, when I spoke to Catherine Buller, um, coin cover, um, I think it was episode 14 of this podcast, she spoke about how coin covers offerings backed by Lloyds of London Syndicate. Mm-hmm. That was a selling point for them. And for people who don't know, why is that so important? What does it mean and how does it help? Yeah. So really simply, Lloyds of London is not an insurer. They're a a marketplace. They're a marketplace within the UK financial structure. Mm -hmm. So around the world, the UK insurance market is seen as sort of top tier. They've got really good regulation, Mm -hmm. really good minimum standards and, and the like. Lloyds is a second level within that. They have their own minimum standards. Uh, every syndicate, these are the insurers who are part of that market, mm. have to submit uh, business cases and plans to Lloyd's every year and updates and strategies and plans and new business targets and everything. And the reason why they do that is Lloyd's has had an S&P rating of A plus for years and they want to keep it that way. Yeah. They want stability. Yeah. Lloyd's has been around for I think nearly 300 years now or maybe a little bit over. I, I should know this. But they've survived everything simply by having that consistent requirement of, as an underwriter, you need to do your job well. There's a a minimum threshold. Because of that, underwriters at Lloyd's are very, very detail-orientated. 
And it's something that a lot of our international clients struggle with because they're used to going to effectively an insurer, they fill out a little form and they yeah. spat out a quote. Yeah. It's not how we do it. Yeah. The, the Lloyd's market is, no, I want to meet you. I want to interview you. I want to find out whether or not I'm going to give you my capacity because Lloyd's is still very much a capital market. They're looking at this going, you might, but you might give me, say, we'll just say nice round numbers, a hundred thousand pounds or dollars. I'm literally giving you an investment on the other side for that. That if certain stipulations made, you get the money. No, no, no questions asked. Mm-hmm. It's not no questions asked, but pretty straightforward. I appreciate. There's always going to be questions asked. Yeah. But, <laughs> yeah. And because of this, when there are claims, Lloyd's is typically very good at paying claims. And so there's a trust there. And it becomes this whole thing that Lloyd's has, because it's gone and done its due diligence, it airs on the side of, well, we did our due diligence and we got it wrong. There was a claim. That's mm-hmm. We're insurance companies. That's our life. Yep. We pay the claim. Yep. And so from our perspective, it gives us an authority saying, look, there's this organization, you know, 300 years old, pays claims. And that's what, you know, at the end of the day, why people buy insurance. So I guess... By using that language, by saying that it's backed by lawyers of London, it gives that sense of credibility and the idea that it's been scrutinized yep. and that there will be, uh, it's almost like an expectation that it will be paid out should should it be necessary. 100%. Also, Lloyd's is one of, is one of the few, glo- it's a true global market mm. where, um, so without getting too technical here, everyone, um, there's a thing called admitted and not admitted insurance. So basically in certain countries, you can only buy insurance from local insurance companies. Right. And as a company, you're not allowed to go foreign. Right. Um, not all countries, but many countries allow, treat Lloyd's as if it's a domestic insurer. So you can have access to them. Um, you still got to go through an appropriate broker, mm. but you can, as a, a company in the States, for example, you can get access to them, mm. which means you can, there's that international recognition. Okay. So that again means that there's that level of of, of checks and balances and, and goodwill. Um, in that article, and I didn't read all of it because I read most of it already, but there was a little bit more. I said historically, securing that coverage has been difficult, often requiring complicated underwriting processes and the involvement of third-party surveys. Yep. Why has securing coverage been so difficult in the past? Be- simply because if you wanted to say you're a custodian and you want to get a hundred million of custody cover, mm. there are some insurers. Um, can I an arch, for example, who could probably write that 100%. Mm. But as syndicates go, they look at things from proportionality, mm. not true limit size. Mm. So typically speaking, they look at things about how much of their overall ability they're actually able to put out. So they want to look at things of, well, I want to put out, say, 30%. So what happens is to get to, say, the limit you need, you have to get lots of insurers involved. And up to a few years ago, basically how you had to do that was you would go to someone like, uh, Canopius or Arch, and you'd get them to lead the program, get their capacity, and they might say, oh, look, I can do up to this much. And then you'd literally, this was a literal thing, you would have to walk around this one building, go to all these different boxes, and broke the individuals. And half of them in the digital asset space would be like, maybe I want to meet them. So yeah. then oh, yeah. I had to set up a call. But you're not dealing with two insurers' yeah. diaries you have to worry about. I'm dealing with 13 insurers' diaries yeah. plus... We need the CTO of the client. We need the CEO. We need this chief risk. Officer. Again, it's a long process, or it would have been a long, difficult, arduous. So, process. typically speaking, for a custody program, it used to take around about nine to twelve months to place the first policy. Yeah. Once it was placed, renewal was easy because you had the paperwork. Yeah, it was already done. Yeah. But it was that first place of educating, and especially for a few years ago, mm. was every bit of technology was so innovative. Mm. You having to educate that way. These days, through our process, because we've delegated that authority to these two leads, it's just two people's diary I need to manage. Much easier. A lot easier. And also, they're two people who actually understand. And that makes a lot of difference because you don't have to explain it again. I'm not sitting there going, okay, first off, this is what a blockchain is. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're now going straight in with how's their protocols working? What yeah. kind of, yeah. uh, how are they doing it? Oh, we're doing a, f- a three or four process. Okay, three or four. How are we storing them? Are we using a third part? And it's, we're straight into the detail. Yeah. As opposed to having to, what is money? Um, and <laughs> you're not starting from a baseline anymore. Yeah. It then says in the article, our new custody insurance facility makes it easier for companies operating in the digital asset ecosystem to build robust custody insurance programs, enabling them to better protect valuable digital assets and effectively serve their customers. That's a lot of mention of custody. So if it, if it is about custody, what's it not about? So... In the digital asset world, effectively, you have two big broad forms of risk. 
you've got the custody, which is literally the storing protection of mm-hmm. assets. And then you have everything else. Everything else is actually quite, to be honest, it's just what every other business has. It is your directors of companies coming out and making statements and being sued for it by their investors, yeah. by the SEC, by FCA, who, whomever. Um, you've got contractual liability. Say you're a, an exchange who's got a relationship with a major bank and you fail to do your professional duty. Um, boring stuff like employer's liability. You didn't keep your employees safe. Just really mundane, regular businesses. What this is, is that, so one of the biggest reasons for purchasing insurance is in the spaces for exchanges and custodians mm-hmm. who are trying to, they're trying to build trust uh, with their customer bases. And one of the easiest ways to do so is not only have we invested all this money and time into our tech stack and our security stack and we vet our employees and we have all these you know, second pair of eyes, worst case scenario, I've got a nice insurance policy in my back pocket. And that gives their customers a bit of security and safety. The other side of things that we focus on is just general business risk, just running a running a successful, uh, growing corporate business. So the custody bit, as it were, sits alongside all the other normal things that you would expect. Yeah, and I guess this this initiative has been successful. Uh, we we like to think so. I'm actually currently in the process of renewing it, so uh, seeing out over the next uh, few weeks and months as we get get you back in in a little bit. Yeah, and... we'll get back in a little bit. Say how successful it was, but we're 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 doing well. We've got a nice healthy pipeline. Yeah, I've got meetings over the next sort of uh, weeks and so with with clients and prospects to yeah. talk to them about their custody risks as well as just the general business risks. Yeah, um, so I just like the idea that is all this uh, the term. I don't know whether I like it or not. I haven't decided yet. Just tradfi. Yeah. It's just a lie. That's my sense of things. Is as this is continuing to legitimise the tradfi guys are going. Oh, there's some noise over here. We need to get involved. Yeah, and we. It's the 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 tradfi guys are re- really interesting because they're now. Some of them were buying now and trying to do it all in house. I'm actually seeing a lot more of them are contracting, and so we're getting a lot of our clients saying, "Um, I've just got this contract with insert major bank here. <laughs> um." What's this all about? Uh, they the procurement time says we need to have this ridiculous limit of premium, and half the time it's going okay. We can actually help you negotiate that back with yeah. your lawyers. Um, I also had a look at another a, a, a paper, let's call it online. It was called Digital Assets Insurance's Critical Role, uh, which explains the types of offerings available to those in the digital asset space, or at least those engaging with them. In it, um, the article notes, um, Fidelity slash crime insurance can protect against direct financial losses as a result of theft, disappearance, a bit ominous that, or destruction of property, including digital assets and private keys. A crime policy can protect assets in a variety of environments, including cold, warm, and hot storage. Accordingly, crime coverage is one of the most sought-after coverages in the digital asset space. Can you tell me a little bit more about that type of coverage? I know we touched a little bit earlier, but it'd be good to understand how that interacts with this space and what does it actually cover, how popular it's been, yep. et cetera. So uh, crime or fidelity is basically not dissimilar from what was known as banker's bond. It is designed to protect, I'm going to stop using the word asset here for example and use money okay. that is under your care, custody and control. Mm-hmm. Um, as a bank or as a custodian or as an exchange, you are holding, I'm going to use the inverted commas here, money, mm. that's going to be Bitcoin, mm. on behalf of other people. Mm. It's in your... The term is the care, custody, and control. You control it. Mm-hmm. You've got the keys or the key shares. You can do what you like with it. With that comes a sense of liability and responsibility. In the the financial world, when you give your money to a bank, they have to protect that. Mm-hmm. All this does is does the same thing, but it's a way broader form of insurance than, say, the specie cover. Remember, specie was designed for cold, you know, things in safes and vaults, mm-hmm. not potentially fluid things that are moving a lot more fast. Yeah. So when I talk to custodians and exchanges, it's never specie or crime. It should be specie and crime. Yeah. The problem with the crime market is it's um, rated more expensively. And there's- Or just historical reasons. It it just is because it's got more broader coverages. Right. And technically, it can cover things like third-party hacks, automation. Mm. Little things like an automatic bug that allows you to send things to the wrong wallet. There is an ability for that to cover that which it doesn't have a human element to it. That's where that hot wallet comes in. The great thing about crime is that it has this nice, diverse, broad form of cover. The problem is we're a lot more expensive. There is also not as much capacity because of the quote-unquote higher risk. Mm. The insurers uh, who write this are limited to their, what we say, line size. So approximately the, the global market cap, especially for say, like a US-based custodian, mm. 
is about 60 million US dollars worth of capacity. Meanwhile, in the specie market, it's about 850. So huge difference in yeah, yeah, yeah. So when I look talk to um, especially exchanges, my always advice to them is, well, how is your, what's your ratio of uh, your liquidity pools to how, how are you doing it? And what's the ratio between? So a lot of these exchanges will sit there and go, I've got my automatic exchange, about 4% of our total assets under management. And that is automated, fast flow, uh, high volume, low value. And I go, brilliant. Then we've got a little bit of like stuff that requires some sign off. And then we've actually got our liquidity pools that we just draw out once a day from cold storage. Mm-hmm. When we look at something like that, we go, well, let's design a program where we cover off as much as we can on the cheaper rates. Yeah. And then we build a, a crime program adjacent and we use some fancy uh, contractual words to make sure they're all entwined. Don't worry, that's why you pay your broker. Yeah. Um, and uh, and we build our programs that way. And if the larger exchanges, the larger custodians, that is how they build their programs. Is it a matter of the fact that it covers assets when they are stored rather than when they're being used for transactions? I don't know whether there is an obvious answer to that. So within uh, both crime species, you use your transaction language. So it basically, if there's a, you're in, in the, we call movement. Mm-hmm. So it's during the transaction element. Okay. The um, the interesting thing about crime though is that first part you said direct financial loss. Mm-hmm. So there has to be a direct financial loss. You have to have a contractual element that you're in care custody role, and there is a loss. With the growing rise of things like tokenization and of things that aren't money, so I'm going to I'm going to be out there. Cryptocurrencies should be viewed as money. Mm-hmm. So we start tokenizing things that aren't money that can technically be restored, even on private blockchains. Yep. Well. There's no crime loss there because there's no direct financial loss. There's ancillary financial loss, but there's no direct. And that's when you have to start thinking about your coverages and about if you're a custodian, what exactly are the assets you're custodying now? Are you custodying just pure money or digital money? Or are you actually also uh, custodying other things because of the involvement of TradFi coming in? So I suppose if there are certain tokenized assets that might not fall under the remit of the policy, and with your view, and certain policies. So that's why you've got to make sure you're with a broker who understands these subtle nuances yeah. of the technical elements of both the insurance contract, mm-hmm. speaking French, and then also the technical side of the tokenized world. I suppose if you're tokenizing some real world stuff, so you're tokenizing, I don't know, uh, cheese, I don't know where that came from, yeah. but yeah. then that may not fall under the policy. And that's why you need to speak to someone like Lockton who are going to understand the nuances of that market and why that's. And it's making sure that when you build proper, robust programs, mm. and it's not this all business, too many of the market and based on their own individuals. So mm. within the insurance world, a lot of people have come to digital assets from a product line. Mm. So they were a specie broker. They were a crime broker. Mm. They've come from a product line, so they only know their product, and they try to shoehorn everything into their product. But if you come from an agnostic perspective, mm. and I always say to clients, I don't care what you buy. Um, I just want to figure out what your risks are and how yeah. at least understand them. Yeah. You will find a better solution that way. And so when we when we look at insurance products for the digital asset world, we need to be constantly thinking, it was fine a year ago, that doesn't mean it's fine now. We have to keep pushing, have to keep evolving and speaking with our clients and tweaking those things. I think that's very much the same for my industry as well. I mean, the the, the certainly litigation, the tactics used or the or the, the the ways in which you're going to seek to use the court process wildly different from where they were yeah. a year ago, two years ago, six months ago. So you, I guess it's the idea that you have to be alive to updating yourself consistently. And I think that 100% has value for everybody. Mm. Um, I understand Lockton is a global firm. In that respect, what trends have you seen in different jurisdictions? So uh, it's been really interesting. So I'm going to start off with uh, the US um, because it is the one that has been, I find quite fascinating. Um, due to say the lack of regulatory interaction, I'm going to be very polite to you. I was very polite. I, I'm trying to be. I'm on my best behavior. <laughs> yeah, hey, um, we're actually seeing an increased number of clients actually needing insurances yeah. coming to us more. And these are not so much, so custody always kind of exists and just mm. exists for corporate reasons. Mm. But we're getting businesses going, look, we need directors and officers cover. Mm. What if we get randomly sued? We, we think we're following the law to mm. the letter. We're doing really good at making sure we understand uh, the various regulators in the US's rules and mm. states as well. But what if we get it wrong? And I just need something. So you, there's a big, big hunger from them. Also just from the tech providers and just corporate entities, which I find fascinating considering the lack of regulation. Well, I suppose there's more uncertainty. Therefore, you need insurance to cover that uncertainty. 100%. 
on this side of the Atlantic between the UK with the change in the financial surface markets bill, with MICA coming in next year, and uh, what's it, all the great work happening out in Dubai, we're, get, we're seeing a steady stream of these regulated businesses, regulated asset managers all mm. coming through and going, right, what would we do if we remove the word crypto from everything? What would we need to buy? Oh, would we need to buy this program? Well, how do we get as close to that as possible? How do we mirror that as well? The other interesting we're finding is we're seeing from investors more and more insurance requirements. So I'm seeing people with these VC funds, private equity, who are coming in and giving millions to these companies saying, great, but I want to see you a better insurance regime. We want to make sure that the balance sheet is actually protected for statements and the like. Um, we also see it for as they try to get uh, non-executive directors on their board or even just board members mm. going, I'd love to work for you, but you only buy a million of DNO. I, I expect 10. So go speak to your broker. Is it then that maybe the future of this or the future of, of your industry actually relies upon how well a regulated, how well a jurisdiction is regulated? 100%. I'm uh, when I was uh, on a panel not that long ago for the CCDAS conference mm -hmm. on, on global regulation and harmonization. I am pro-regulation. I will shout that from the rooftops. Mm -hmm. I am of the belief that having some form of good regulation is the first step to getting great regulation, getting perfect regulation, mm -hmm. and it's a step process. And we in the industry need to constantly voicing our dissident and, and pushing that through. That's bad for business for you though, isn't it? Great for business regulation. I love regulation because it brings um, surety to the market. I get to go to insurers and say, my client has got these checks and balances reviewed by a regular. Right. It makes it easier. Everybody's singing off the same hymn. It also means that when my underwriter who wants to write this business, remember these underwriters are wanting to, they get to go to their management and say, I'm only writing regulated businesses. Yeah. Okay. And they, I'm not saying they hide it, but it's less of a red light shining in the beacon of the night. Yeah. If you're saying the word crypto, everyone freaks out. Whereas if you're just saying it's a regulated. I'm working for, I've got a, an novel tech company that's regulated by the FCA. Mm -hmm. It's a different conversation. Yeah, yeah, um, it's a different storytelling. Well, while I was on the top of, I, I suppose, trends, let's talk about something that came up. Bob and I met up recently at a, at a cafe called, called uh, uh, Where's Fred's Around the Corner. If anybody hasn't been, it's really good. I don't work there. Um, it's just a fun place to meet up. We had a good coffee and we sat and we spoke about future trends a little bit, particularly on tokens and tokenized versions of specific assets, which we've lent on a little bit today where they potentially might be financial products, could be tokenized real estate, could be tokenized cheese or whatever, as I said earlier. What is tokenization of real world assets, just to explain that? So really, really, really simplistically, it's moving the ownership away from paper and into a digital asset, into a tokenized version of it. There's more complicated things for things like stocks, bonds. So we get all the, the rise of the, so the ETFs elements as well. But we are seeing this idea of, especially uh, a lot of inquiries now coming in commercial real estate, and it's fractionalized ownership um, is another way people like to look at it. Yeah. Get a nice big, well, I'm going to pick on a building that, hey, they might be doing this, I don't know. But like the shard, yeah. you sit there and you fractionalize the ownership. It creates a lower barrier for entry to ownership and into investment. Yeah, anybody can buy a certain percentage of that whole building rather than having to buy the whole thing. 100%. Now, there are questions around when if tokens trading on a secondary market increase in value faster than the building increases in value. You want that's conversations for, we'll sit down with you, your legal teams and you guys sit <laughs> there about the legality and we'll yeah. have all that. And, and well, let's do that over a glass of wine one day. But we are seeing this requirement from a lot of funds who traditionally invest in real estate themselves going, this is going to save us huge amounts in administration costs. The really simple things like bonds, stocks, and deeds, um, if they are destroyed, you can get them recreated from a, a blockchain perspective yeah. quite comfortably. If you, you lose your because it's not so much about key ownership anymore, it's about restoration. And that's the record is immutable. You've got well, as a record thing, that's a really good point. I'd not considered that, for, especially for old things like these. You're right. In terms of all this fractionalized ownership of, let's say, real estate, I find it, although a good thing because the barrier to entry is lower and your everyday person can get involved, my sense of things is that if you want to sell, and it depends how the ownership of this tokenization is made, if you want to sell the building, you might have to regather all of those tokenized parts to then allow the, the relevant rights to pass with the ownership of the building. And I appreciate that there will be ownership of the building versus ownership of the tokens, but maybe you want those rights to carry. So I always think to myself, it surely is a logistical nightmare to try and get all the people who have tokenized versions of something in a fractional manner to be able to unify them again. 
I just find that it's something that maybe needs to work out. I mean, I know there's, I remember years ago, I worked on a, on a matter where it was a public to private takeover a company. Yeah. And I thought, what a logistical nightmare to try and have to gather all of the people who own shares in that company. Sort of a similar thing. And I guess that there may well be um, uh, processes in place to allow that fractional ownership to be regathered for a sale. But I just don't know whether, as of yet, it's been considered as a problem because everyone sees it as such a good thing. We need to also look at the other side of it as well. I don't know whether you have any thoughts on that. I, I do. I'm of a more of a simplistic sort of nature with these kind of things. There, I think it's the overall positive outweigh it. There is these concerns we need to address. But it, that comes down to, on that side, of if it's someone's tokenizing, say, real estate or actually any value, have they thought about all these things? Have they thought about when you want to sell? And a real simple ones is actually things a little bit on a fast basis. The tokenization of um, fine wines mm. and the fractionization of fine wines. Eventually, you want to drink the wine. Yes. Um, that's the plan. So okay. how do you go about doing that? Because you might own the token to the wine, but someone's already drunk the bottle. Yeah. And you've already seen with some of these uh, tokenizations of some assets, you should go into it and they go, oh, I've got a token of some famous bit of artwork, for example. And you should look into the terms and conditions. All the tokenized assets collectively make up 2% of that share ownership. Mm -hmm. So you, you're having a fraction of a fraction of a fraction yep. of 2%. So realistically, you're an irrelevant minor stakeholder. Yep. So it's how it's being set up, how it's being sold. I think with that element hopefully being driven by the financial institutions world, you're going to get, they'll be forced to do declarations in a clear, concise and communicative way. I wonder whether they'll be almost like company's house. Because if you think about tokenization, it is a little bit like having equity in a company to some extent. I wonder whether there'll be a tokenization register that forces people to some extent to provide the rights that they have in particular tokens for a variety of reasons, tax reasons, whatever. But it may well be that that is something that is needed in the future should tokenization go well. I, I think it potentially, it'd just be about linking up to the different chains together. The advantage of what you said from a tax reason though is things are on a token, it's on a nice long ledger that we can see. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure HMRC would be very happy yeah, yeah. to have look, be looking into that kind of element. I'm certainly not sitting here saying that we should pay more tax, but it's just, I'm just trying to think of positives <laughs> in that respect. Um, do you think then that those kind of tokenized digital assets of real world assets require insurance in the same way? I know you lend on this a little bit saying actually there's a nuance, but it'd be good to sort of consider that if you had, say, a tokenized, uh, I, I don't know, a token of, say, 20% of a, of a building, how that would be insured or, or how might it be insured differently to what you're offering now? So it's not the same as to the insurance requirements for cryptocurrencies. There is... Similar markets going to be involved, similar underwriters are going to be in play, mm. but it's not the same risk. It is fundamentally different because typically the, the blockchains used to tokenize real world assets probably aren't going to be public blockchains. They're going to be private, yep. owned by a company that has been consolidated to build the building, the building developer, for example. Yep. Um, or the the metals exchange might create one to the, for the buying and trading of metals. So you don't have to physically move metal from vault A to vault B. You just swap the ownership. Yeah. Seems straight straightforward, but I, I who knows? Um, with that requires different types of nuances with your insurances. And to be honest, it takes it back to no differently than what of a lot of we'll call them traditional custodians mm. who store documents and things from behalf of other companies. It's the same insurances just needs to be nuanced on valuation languages and certain things along those lines. And again, having someone who speaks the language to better translate mm -hmm. between between all that. And I guess it's someone who's going to understand that a Bitcoin or insuring Bitcoin is going to be very, very different from insuring a tokenized version of a real world asset on a blockchain and the nuances that that has. So last question then, what, is, what does the future hold for Lockton in the digital asset space? So I say last question, it's quite a few questions in one. Um, what does the future hold for Lockton in the digital asset space and what might be your predictions for the market generally? So Lockton's future is we're focusing on this investment and continue growing with it. Um, the Lockton's family themselves have been very supportive of the LEAP initiative. Mm. They think it's great. Um, they want us to be a future company. They want us to be the the broken house of the future. So mm. it's actually quite nice knowing you've got sort of the family who's quite quite happy. They're, they're doing what they want, mm. going thumb, two thumbs up, keep up the good work, guys. You're like, okay. <laughs> Thanks very much. That's nice. I will. I, I will continue yeah. to do my job. Um, <laughs> but from the industry as a whole, yeah. I... I'm a very much an optimistic person by nature. I suspect we're going to see an increased flow of TradFi coming in. We're going to see more mass adoption, potentially at that institutional grade level. Mm. And as 
with if tokenization does continue the way I suspect it's going to, it's going to increase the likelihood for wanting to use more digital assets in a more practical way. I do this with a lot of training with people. If people are going out and making tokenized assets and and say the Ethereum protocol, well, people are going to need Ether to make it run. Or and and this is the same for any of the any of the other systems. We're going to have that increase flow. I don't think we're going to, I'm hoping we're not going to have the rapid spikes in value and we're now going to see, start seeing more gentle curves as demand ebbs and flow in a natural sort of process. So like I said, I'm a naturally optimistic person in spite of everything. I'm always going to sit there and be like, I think this is where it's going to go. An insurance market and an optimist, that's a good thing. I know. It makes me interesting. It makes me a fun person to have at the pub at the end of the Friday. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, thanks for joining. Oh, absolutely my pleasure. Thanks for having me. This podcast does not contain any financial or legal advice, and you should not seek to rely on it as such. Opinions are the individual's own. This podcast was produced and edited by Joe Hawkins and music by Luke Carey. Thank you for listening and see you next time.